uh, in this Advent season. I appreciate our teens, our young people, and the staff that are serving us by leading us in the Advent as we go along here. So uh, this morning, uh, I was thinking about uh, a missionary, an early missionary, uh, to China. His name was Matteo Rissi, and he went in the 16th century, one of the early missionaries to China, to that forbidden land. And in order to help communicate the gospel message, he, would take, he took artwork uh, that would portray uh, the birth of the Savior, what we would often call uh, you know, the Advent artwork or Christmas cards, even though cards hadn't been invented at that time. <clears throat> and he took uh, these pictures to illustrate the stories he was telling from Scripture to the Chinese people. And the Chinese, it's reported, readily adopted the portraits of the Virgin Mary holding her baby, and this child, this Christ child. But when Matteo Rishi uh, produced images and pictures of the crucifixion of this babe born in the manger, growing up to hang on the cross of Calvary and die for our sins and for the sins of the world and to be executed in such a way, the people of China that uh, Rishi was uh, ministering to uh, just reacted with revulsion and horror they much preferred the Virgin Mary and the babe as a Christ child, and they insisted on worshiping the baby rather than the crucified Christ. And I think uh, much of our artwork today on Christmas cards uh, is that we in Christian countries can do much of the same thing. We focus on the babe in the manger, which the first advent is a miraculous thing as we read passages of Scripture which describe it in Luke 2. And we observe uh, this domestic, domesticated holiday uh, without the hint of scandal. And we think about why Jesus really came and how he came. And we're in danger of purging from this story, this account of the first advent, all of this that began at Bethlehem and uh, ended a few miles later or really was consummated on the cross of Calvary uh, there in Jerusalem. And so, to our culture, Christmas is about gift-giving, about tinsel, mistletoe, Christmas cards, food, family, and all those things can be good things, but if we lose sight of the pure and true meaning of Christmas, uh, we are in danger at that time. So we come to this passage this morning. The passage that uh, uh, Dave read for us out of Colossians 1 is really an echo out of an Old Testament passage. We've been looking at the Old Testament, really, which is the beginning point of any Christmas pageant, any Christmas play that we would see today. And remember, we looked in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the promise, and in Genesis 22, the son of the promise, and today we're looking at the story of the promise out of Isaiah chapter 9. What Paul wrote for us in Colossians chapter 1 was written after the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was looking with 2020 hindsight and given the truth of what God had revealed to him, whereas Isaiah, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, is looking forward to this coming Messiah, this one that God had promised clear back in Genesis chapter 3. And so as we look and think about that passage that uh, Dave read for us, uh, Paul says that uh, Christmas... Uh, is not about a cute little baby in a manger that's all clean in the straw. That's got not good enough, says the Apostle Paul. At Easter, we present the image of a dying Jesus hanging on the cross, and that's not good enough, says Paul. That's not the end of the story. Paul says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Uh, there's a story that uh, commentator William Barclay tells 
about a letter written by a Greek soldier to his father. At the end of the letter, he writes, I send you my little portrait of myself painted by Eutychemon. The word translated as portrait in that letter to his father is the same word that's translated image in Colossians 1.15. The word is also used in the context of a Greek legal document. In those days, since they didn't have cameras and do selfies and all that stuff, uh, in order to make a contract with contracting parties, they were required to list their personal distinguishing characteristics and marks, their image, if you will, so there would be no question about who signed the legal document. And uh, Jesus is the portrait, the image sent to us by God the Father, and in him are all the personal characteristics of God. God is in all his fullness in Christ, Paul tells us. Well, Isaiah had a similar declaration here in Isaiah chapter 9, a very familiar passage, especially at Christmas time. But it is the story of promise for sure. And so we come to Isaiah, and Isaiah is prophetic literature. Isaiah was a prophet. We call him a major prophet. There are major prophets in the Old Testament and minor prophets. It doesn't mean that one is more important than the other. It's just the length of their work. Isaiah wrote a very long book, whereas some of the minor prophets are very short books. But Isaiah was a prophet, and the task of a prophet was to foretell the Word of God that had already been revealed. They were to declare it accurately. But they were also burdened with the responsibility in the ministry to foretell what the future held. And they were to tell it exactly as God revealed it to them. Otherwise, they could be stoned if they were wrong. And so a true prophet only spoke the words, the very words of God, the thus saith the Lord. He could automatically and accurately say that. So Adam, Isaiah, excuse me, uh, was this prophet. And prophets in the Old Testament uh, they would see a near event, and then there would be a far event, which they would also declare. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 9. There's the near event of the destruction of Israel, the captivity by the Assyrians, and yet there is a far event that's coming. It's much like us looking at a range of mountains, and we see the peaks that are nearest to us, and we also see peaks behind it. What we don't see from our vantage point is the valley in between. And it's the same for the Old Testament prophets. They compressed the events together, so from their perspective, it seemed like these things had already happened or were immediately to happen, and yet they didn't see the valley in between. And the valley in between, of course, is the New Testament, the church age, and what they're not seeing is that time span between the two mountain tops. And so Isaiah here is talking about a near prophecy. He's foretelling that God is judging Israel at this time. There's the coming fall of Israel and Aram in chapter 8. Remember, uh, as we look at this, every passage of Scripture has a context, and the danger of pulling it out of context is it becomes a pretext. And so we need to understand in the context of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, is that there is a coming Assyrian invasion of Israel, and there's a coming victory of God described in chapter 8. And it confirms that God is coming to help Israel and the deliverance of Judah by God's word and then the future deliverance of the nation in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Well, Isaiah is seeing the near mountaintop in chapter 8, what is going to happen to Judah at this time. 
But the far mountaintop is yet to happen even to us, and it's called the millennium when Christ will reign literally upon the earth. But yet he makes some declarations here about the person of Christ, this babe in the manger, which Paul echoes in Colossians chapter 1. So in Isaiah, he, he talks about this light, not light that will come and fulfill and take away the darkness, and it's a fulfillment of God's covenant promise from long ago. If we were to look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, remember Isaiah's prophesying about this coming babe that is going to be the first advent of the Messiah. Therefore the Lord himself, Behold, the virgin will be with child. She will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Remember that this Savior was promised clear back in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan would be crushed that God would provide a Savior and this babe in the manger. And so over 700 years before the birth, before the first advent of Jesus Christ, this child in Bethlehem, the prophet wrote about his incarnation. There are over 22 different prophecies concerning the Messiah in Isaiah. Isaiah is a great book to read because he is called the missionary prophet. He is declaring that the Savior is coming into the world. And Isaiah paints for us a picture of Jesus, of Bethlehem, and of Christmas as the Bible declares it. There was a Christmas carol written by William uh, Chatterton Dix back in 1865 uh, over in Great Britain, and it's called, What Child Is This? And he asked this question in his Christmas carol that we sing yet today. And Isaiah defines for us, listen as I read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, And then we will look at a few things from this passage. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Heavenly Father, uh, this passage, uh, perhaps very familiar to many, and yet so full of your great truth, and we thank you that you can lead and guide us, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we ask the question and sing the carol, what child is this? Isaiah tells us that this child is one that will dispel the darkness. Remember, this is yet to, in its fullness to occur, and yet Isaiah It's future to us, and yet Isaiah uses perfect tense verses. And what that means is that this was as good as done from Isaiah's viewpoint. 
from what God had revealed to him, this is as good as done. It is accomplished. There is no question about it that this has happened, even though we don't see it in our experience even today. And it will be fully seen during the millennial period when Christ comes back in the second advent and reigns from his throne in Jerusalem. And so this child will dispel the darkness uh, since Don has had foot surgery, I've been sleeping in the guest bedroom. Of course, I've known I've been a guest for some 40-some years. And so I've been in the other bedroom. And, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, and it's dark, and I'm confused. Where am I? You know, I can't find the light switch. I can't see the clock face and stumble around in there and, and bump into the wall and stuff. Boy, it's nice when you turn on the light. The darkness flees, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus Christ will do as the Messiah. He will dispel the darkness. This child will dispel this darkness. C.S. Lewis, in his work, The Weight of Glory, writes that, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that is the task here today as we teach God's Word, as we read God's Word, whether you study it through women's Bible studies, through youth uh, conferences and all of that, or come on Sunday mornings, <clears throat> we hopefully are all growing in our ability to think theologically, to see through the grid work of God's Word, to notice that the world's events, this is not the end of the story. We can get all upset and worried all about our government, about the political system, about the world situation, about terrorism, about all the voices that call upon us in 24-7 newscasts. And yet if we run it through the theological gridwork of who and what Christ is, we know that ultimately there will be a, a consummation of this. We don't need to worry about it. This child will dispel the darkness. The late Charles Colson, who had uh, the prison ministry, once met with the president of Ecuador, and he just wanted to discuss prison uh, fellowship international's ministry with uh, in in the midst of the Ecuadorian penitentiaries, and they had been seated. and Charles Colson writes that pres the president of Ecuador at that time interrupted their conversation with a story of his own. He had been imprisoned. Years before being elected to the presidency, he had been involved in the struggle for democracy in that country, and the military had cracked down. He was arrested, and without trial, they threw him into a dungeon with no light and no window. And for three days, he endured the solitary fear and darkness that can drive a person mad. Just when the situation seemed unbearable, a huge steel door opened, and someone crept into the darkness of that dungeon, and uh, the president, or the pre then president, heard the person working on something in the opposite corner. The figure crept out, closed the door, and disappeared. Minutes later, the room suddenly blazed with light. Someone, perhaps taking his life into his own hands, had connected electricity to a broken light fixture in that dungeon. From that moment on, explained President Borgia of Ecuador, my imprisonment had meaning because at least I could see. Even more important than the light we see with our eyes is the light that Christ brings to our hearts, giving our lives the understanding and meaning only Christ can give. All is not darkness. This child will dispel the darkness here in verses 1 and 2. He tells us the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In their day and age, when Isaiah wrote this with the threat of his Assyrian invasion, with all of the, the things that were wrong in the land of Judah, 
yet he would say that there is a great light coming, and that is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5, this child will provide deliverance, the promise of glorious increase of gladness in our lives. Look at verse 3 with me. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. He uses two examples of the harvest. When there is a good harvest, that's when, when, when farmers, when the agricultural system is happy, isn't it? They are glad because God has bountifully blessed the harvest. Or with an invading army that takes all the spoil and it's theirs for the taking. This is the idea here that Jesus Christ will increase the gladness in our lives. I love the story I think I've told you before about the writer John Ortberg. He's a pastor in California. And he writes about taking his children to the shrine of the golden arches. And he said, they always lust for the meal that comes with a cheap little prize, a combination christened in a moment of marketing genius, the happy meal. You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. You're buying happiness. Uh, Their advertisements have convinced my children they have a little McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their souls. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in a happy meal, Ortberg writes. I try to buy off the kids sometimes. I tell them to order only the, food, only the food, and I'll give them a quarter to buy a little toy on their own, but the cries go up. I want a happy meal. All over the restaurant, people crane their necks to look at the tight-fisted, penny-pinching cheapskate of a parent <laughs> who would deny a child the great meal of great joy. The problem with the happy meal is that the happy wears off, Ortberg writes, and they need a new fix. No child discovers lasting happiness in just one. Remember the Happy Meal? What great joy I found there. (laughs) Happy Meals bring happiness only to McDonald's, he writes. You ever wonder why Ronald McDonald wears that stupid grin? 20 billion Happy Meals, that's why. (laughs) He finishes up by saying, when you get older, you don't get any smarter. Your Happy Meals just get more expensive. The gospel brings the light and the power and the gladness and the joy, and those who receive it can rejoice. It is a holy joy. It is a great joy. So there is this promise of glorious increase of gladness, Isaiah writes about. Because of this one, this Messiah, this child who will provide deliverance, there's a promise of glorious liberty and engagement in our lives. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel of fire. This is a picture, this is metaphor based in history of being released from under the oppression and the bondage of those who would oppress us. And especially for the people of Judah at this time, knowing the great superpower of Assyria was ready to overrun them and make them into a puppet state of the Assyrian people. And so there is glorious liberty involved in this. There's an apocryphal story about our president, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, the story goes something like this, that Lincoln went down to the slave block to buy a slave girl. And as she looked at the white man bidding on her, she figured this was just another white man who was going to buy her and then abuse her. 
He won the bid, and as he was walking away with his property, he said, young lady, you are free to go. She said, what does that mean? I mean, you are free. Does that mean, she said, that I can say whatever I want to say? Lincoln said, yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean, she said, that I can be whatever I want to be? And Lincoln said, yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? He said, yes, you can go wherever you want to go. The girl with tears streaming down her face said, then I will go with you. And that's the freedom, the gladness, the liberty that enlarges our lives in Jesus Christ. But who shall undertake these great things? Who will do it? Isaiah previously in Isaiah 7.14 wrote of a virgin whose birth he had foretold this babe in the manger. Now he speaks of what this one is going to do. When we think of names, we think of how important names are. Perhaps not so much in our culture as in the culture of uh, Isaiah's day and age. Names were very important uh, because they said something about you. And basically, we are stuck with whatever name we get, aren't we? Uh, we are represented by our names. Uh, we think of names, and we'll run across people who have multiple names, don't we? There's Charles, Philip, Arthur, George, Windsor. Uh, that sounds odd until you discover that's Prince Charles. And uh, that's a heavy load to place on a baby, isn't it? Remember, he's royalty, and he needs a long name. <laughs> And so it is with Jesus before his birth. He was a child with many names. And so Isaiah writes, and he gives us these names. This child will display dominion. He will exercise dominion. Not only does he dispel darkness, he not only provides deliverance, but he will display dominion in verses 6 and 7. And here Isaiah tells us and promises and records us five things about the coming Messiah in verses 6 and 7. The promise keeper was to be born as a child. Remember, God is the only true promise keeper. In verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. This child will be born as a child, Emmanuel, God with us. The the stunning point of Christmas is that God looked down and considered our needs uh, to be so much of a worth in his relationship to us that he was sufficient to cause, it was sufficient cause to go through the trauma of changing places, of sending a Savior, God the Son, to invade this planet. So he is born as a child. Secondly, the promise keeper will rule over God's people in the world. Look at the second part of verse 6. And his government shall rest upon his shoulders. The minor prophet Micah wrote in Micah 5.2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Zechariah 14.9, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. The government will be on his shoulders. Figuratively or metaphorically, it refers to a kingly robe that would be worn by one of royalty, and the Messiah will have that as king. So the promise keeper will rule over God's people and over all the world. The promise keeper reveals his character in four names, perhaps the most uh, well-known portion of this passage of Scripture. Uh, Billy Sunday, who was an evangelist in the early uh, 1900s, said there are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that one name could express. And so Isaiah gives us four names here. The first one is Wonderful Counselor in the third part of 6. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Uh, From time to time, all of us need counsel. We need the advice and the wisdom of somebody else who can look objectively at our situation and give us wise counsel. This is a wonderful counselor. He is exceptional or distinguished what this word means, this Hebrew word. Things that are unusual and beyond human capabilities, it wakens astonishment in us as human beings. It strikes people forcefully in a clear impression of God's care in the midst of all that we're going through. Boy, if there's any a time, of course, every stage of history, we need a wonderful counselor. We see all the various messages and all the conflict, whether it's in our own political system, in our own nation, in the whole world, we need a counselor who is wonderful, exceptional, distinguished. Our Savior is the authoritative one as a counselor, the godlike counsel of this godlike king. So wonderful counselor. The second name is Mighty God. The Hebrew is El Gabor. El Gabor, our Savior is mighty. It means all-powerful, mighty divine hero. Our Savior is God, not a godlike person or a godlike hero. He's God himself. That title, that Hebrew word El, which means God, it's a title, and Isaiah only uses it of deity. Not of any human being, but only of deity. And here he is describing this coming Messiah as God himself. The third name is Everlasting Father. It's a, kind of a strange name, isn't it? Because we think of God the Son, we think of Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, as God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet here he's called Everlasting Father. It means Father of Eternity. Father of Eternity. This is a reference to the fact that Jesus alone can give eternal life. When we think about life after our physical death, when we think of what's going to occur after we physically die, that's called eternal life or life ever after. And who has control of that? Jesus Christ, this Father of eternity. It originates with Him. Anything of eternal life, eternal life originates with Him. He gave us power to become the sons of God. Many people are puzzled by this declaration or this ascription as everlasting Father. It distinguishes him. How can the son be a father? Well, there are several things that be noted. First of all, the Messiah, being the second person of the Trinity, is in essence God. Therefore, he has all the attributes of God, including eternality. Since God is one, even though he exists in three persons, the Messiah is God. There are a lot of heresies that spring out of the first, second, and third century of church history that are still with us today. And uh, they've just been popularized and changed that God, that Jesus was not really God, the eternal in eternity past, but uh, God placed himself upon this human being and then left him before his crucifixion and a number of other heretical understandings. Secondly, the title Everlasting Father is a idiom, Hebrew idiom, to describe the Messiah's relationship to time, not his relationship to other members of the Trinity. He is said to be everlasting, just like the Father, uh, God the Father is called the Ancient of Days. Uh, the, the Messiah will be a fatherly ruler, a perfect father. And thirdly, perhaps Isaiah had in mind the promise of David about the 
foreverness of the kingdom which God promised would come through David's line. Uh, the Messiah, a descendant of David, will fulfill the promise which his nation had been waiting for and which all human beings are blessed by. Eternal Father, our Savior is eternal. Our Savior is the Father, his relationship to time, his foreverness. The fourth name that Isaiah gives us is Prince of Peace. This phrase captures the universal character of Messiah's reign with an exchange, or excuse me, with the extension to all of his creation. Prince of Peace, Shar Shalom, our Savior is uh, one who is over all things. He is all-powerful. Our Savior will rule with authority. He will establish peace. We have the inability to establish peace, as is obvious in the Middle East, as is obvious within our own country from time to time. He will have an eternal rule. Look at verse 7, the first part of verse 7 with me. There will be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and righteousness. The Messiah will sit, be seated on David's throne, and Luke chapter 1 tells us this as well as many other places. He will have an eternal rule of peace and justice with no end forever and ever, and he will maintain righteousness throughout all things. And he will zealously accomplish these things. We like zealousness for the most part, don't we? As fans of of football or sports, uh, we want to be zealous in being a fan. And it tells us here that from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He is zealous for his plan. He will accomplish what he's promised because he is the promise keeper, the zeal of the Lord Almighty. The millennial kingdom depends upon God. It doesn't depend on Israel or the church. The millennial kingdom will come as promised in Scripture, and Jesus will reign in the second advent of Christ. So as we are involved in uh, Christmas decorations, gift-giving, food, families, and all of those things, as good as they are, we need to remember that God would hide the treasure of this baby in our hearts, that we would recognize he is the Savior, the Messiah, that Isaiah so powerfully foretold and who Paul recognized in Colossians as the great God as we prepare through this next week. I've told you before that one of my favorite authors when I was younger was Bret Hart. Bret Hart uh, wrote a story called The Luck of Roaring Camp. The Luck of Roaring Camp. And in that camp, it was supposed to be, according to the story, the meanest, toughest mining town in all of the West. More murders, more thefts. It was a terrible place, inhabited entirely by men, and one woman who tried to serve them all. Her name was Cherokee Sal. She died while giving birth to a baby. Well, the men took the baby, and they put the baby in the box with some old rags under it, and they looked at it. They decided it didn't look quite right, so they sent one of the men 80 miles around trip to buy a rosewood cradle. The story goes on to say he brought it back, and they put the rags and the baby in the rosewood cradle, and the rags didn't look right there either. So they sent one of their number to Sacramento, and he came back with some beautiful silk and lace blankets. They put the baby wrapped around those blankets, in those blankets, and in the rosewood cradle. It looked fine until someone happened to notice that the floor was so filthy, and these hardened, toughened men got down on their hands and knees, and with their hardened hands, they scrubbed the floor until it was very clean. Of course, 
what did that make of the walls and the ceiling and the dirty windows and the curtains? All looked absolutely terrible after that. So they washed down the walls and the ceiling. They put curtains at the windows. And now things were beginning to look as though they, as they should look. But of course, they had to give up a lot of their fighting because the baby slept a lot and babies can't sleep during a loud brawl. <laughs> and uh, Bret Hart goes on the right. So the whole temperature of Roaring Camp seemed to go down in temperature. They used to take her out and set her by the entrance of the mine in her rosewood cradle so they could see her when they came up out of the mine. And somebody noticed what a dirty place that was, so they planted flowers and they made a very nice garden there. It looked quite beautiful. And they would bring her Oh, it's shiny little stones and flecks of gold and they would find that they would find in the mind. But when they put their hands down next to hers, their hands looked dirty. And pretty soon the general store was all sold out of soap, shaving gear and perfume and those kinds of things. This baby changed everything. And that's the way it is for us who are believers in Christ. That's the way of those who want to please God. The baby enters into our lives. He slips into every crevice of our experience, and they say, Hark, listen, the herald angels sing, God is for us, and Christmas is forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage out of Isaiah. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah. These powerful words about your character, Lord Jesus, about who you are, that there will be no end to the increase of your government or of peace. How we long for peace. And your word declares that there will be perfect peace, and that you will come again in the second advent. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are given us the Lord Jesus Christ, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. We praise you and thank you for this morning and pray that through this day and through the days that you give us ahead, that we would honor you, glorify you, and that this Christmas season would be very special to each one of us as we recall and reflect upon your greatest gift, the gift of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.